we need policy, first of all, because we live in a linear economy where many of um, the rules, uh, the way we are and act as consumers, etc., are linear. We've been trained to quickly change products, buy a lot of new products. We have a lot of products that don't last very long. We don't repair them. Uh, and that also means when companies enter this linear economy with a more circular or sustainable business, they have a hard time competing. Welcome to Advancing Sustainable Solutions, the IIIW podcast. We are the International Institute for Industrial and Environmental Economics at Lund University, and this episode will be hosted by Sophie Sandin and Stephen Curtis. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Thanks for joining us for our last episode in our mini-series on the circular economy. Now, if you're just joining us, in our previous two episodes of this mini-series, we have discussed circular business models in the fashion industry and circular resource flows in cities. In each episode, we have discussed the need for policy to support a circular economy. Yeah, that's right. So finally, today, we turn our attention to policy and the need for policy to support businesses and consumers to realize all of the sustainability potential of a circular economy. Now, we've discussed in our previous episodes that the circular economy is not sustainable by default. We need rigorous policy and well-designed business models. In today's episode, we sit down with Carl Dahlhammer, Associate Professor in Environmental Product Policy, with a focus on the circular economy. And we're also joined by Jessica Luth Richter, who just defended her PhD thesis here at the Institute. She will enlighten us all discussing her research on policies for a circular economy using the examples of light bulbs. So let's revisit what we mean when we say the circular economy. The circular economy is an economic system that seeks to eliminate waste by creating a closed loop system. In this way, products are used for as long as they possibly can be used through reuse, repair and refurbishment. And when a product can no longer be used, the materials are recycled and used in the manufacturing of new products, as such seeking to eliminate waste from the system. There are three key strategies to realize a circular economy that we have discussed throughout this miniseries. These are narrowing, slowing, and closing resource loops. You've certainly heard these three strategies before, and by the end of our mini-series, we hope that you will all be able to remember these strategies and maybe even through an example. Yeah, absolutely. And understanding these three strategies is essential because the circular economy is not just about recycling. Narrowing resource loops sees fewer and less materials used in any given products. Look at your shirt right now, for example. How many materials is it made out of? maybe polyester and cotton, maybe viscose and wool. By using fewer materials, we narrow resource loops and we also make products easier to recycle. The second strategy, slowing resource loops, sees products used for a longer period of time. So think of any way that you can extend a product's lifetime. So for example, you may visit a repair cafe to fix something that is broken. Or in the case of my own research, you can share a product or even buy secondhand. This extends the product lifetime, thereby slowing resource loops. Now, let's consider the final strategy of closing resource loops. 
Clothing Resource Loop sees waste materials being recycled and incorporated back into new products. This is where product design is so important. By designing products to be disassembled or recycled more easily, this supports the elimination of waste in a closed loop system. Yes, but now Stephen, before we get too far into the episode, uh, perhaps you have to explain to our listeners why you sound so funny. Yeah, indeed. Well, I'm actually calling into this month's episode of the podcast from Colorado, uh, here in the United States, where I'm from. Uh, and I'm spending so much needed time here in the mountains, resting and writing, uh, trying to make progress in my PhD thesis. Um, and why am I here? Well, in early November, my research team and I, we uh, traveled to Canada to conduct field work studying the sharing economy in Toronto. And being so close to the holidays, I, instead of flying back and forth across the ocean, I wanted to extend my trip and have the opportunity to see friends and family across the United States. And, you know, what's really cool is uh, I'm actually traveling completely by bus or train once I've now arrived here in North America. And it's really enjoyable. I have some really fun experiences to share, but also some kooky, crazy stories uh, from my travels. <laughs> Definitely looking forward to that. But Stephen, I gotta say, I'm so glad that you can join us from your travels. But now when you are abroad, what are you seeing or experiencing regarding the circular economy in the US? Yeah, um, well, uh, to be honest, I don't really hear as much about the circular economy or sustainability for that matter here in the US. And this isn't to say that there aren't some great people doing amazing things in the US in this space. But at least for me, it doesn't seem to permeate the culture or, or the news as much as I'm used to now living in Sweden for, for so long. Uh, but from what I've experienced just in my few weeks back here in the U.S., it seems that the driving force for a circular economy is really business. Something that I saw in the news actually recently, the, the largest home improvement retailer in the U.S., it's uh, called Home Depot, They've added circularity as one of their six pillars of its, what they call eco options program. And this program identifies the best products for the environment. And since its inception in 2007, it's accounted for a total of 10 billion US dollars in sales. So it's not a small chunk of their market. Now they acknowledge that the circular economy is more than just recycling building materials. And they emphasize the need to consider how we design manufacture and reuse products. And I think it's really great to see such a big company like this in the US thinking in this way. Yeah, certainly. And here back in Europe, the circular economy is all the bus. And perhaps by now you know that jingle. And this already brings us to our sustainability scoop of the month. In contrast to the US, where business seems to be driving the circular economy, here in Europe, it seems that it is increasingly on the policy agenda. We have two exciting pieces of news to share with you that showcase this ongoing policy work in the circular economy in Europe. First, we wanted to share the recent work by the European Environment Agency, also commonly known as the EEA. Our director here at the Institute is the chair of the EEA Scientific Committee. On the 4th of December, the European Environment Agency released its 500-page report on the state and outlook of the European environment. The report is published every five years with the purpose to inform policymakers in Europe and globally. And the EEA has a strong message. 
They say that we face urgent sustainability challenges that require urgent and systemic solutions. Yeah, so this report calls on policymakers to develop more systemic, long-term policy frameworks that actually have binding targets and mechanisms for enforcement. In the report, the circular economy is featured to a high degree. It's mentioned more than 150 times, and it even has its own chapter. The EEA suggests that the circular economy has gained traction in European policymaking, largely because it takes a solutions-oriented perspective to both achieve economic development, while at the same time reducing resource extraction and greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, and our next piece of news that we want to share with you uh, is that maybe you have already heard that the European Commission now has a new president. Her name is Ursula von der Leyen, and she really places an emphasis on the role of a circular economy in her agenda for the European Union in the coming five years. In this agenda, she writes, and I quote, The circular economy is key for developing Europe's future economic model, end of quote. The circular economy is also said to be the number one priority of the EU's European Green Deal, which supports Europe's aim to become the world's first climate-neutral continent. In order to do so, they have already suggested some industries likely to be the focus of forthcoming EU regulation, and these sectors include textiles, transport, food, as well as the construction sector. Yeah, and these are important sectors with much environmental and climatological impact, and are the focus of ongoing research here at our institute. And for those that listen to our podcast regularly, we've covered both the textile and the construction sectors in our previous episode of this mini-series on the circular economy. And I just have to say, I think it's great to see such an emphasis placed on the circular economy in a forthcoming European Green Deal. This really shows just how important and how topical the circular economy is right now, especially considering policy for a circular economy. Yeah, we're certainly reading a lot more about uh, the European Green Deal. You know, and I was actually scrolling through LinkedIn recently, and I saw that a friend is working in this area, an alumna of our master's program, Mia Panzer. She's a senior policy analyst at the Institute for European Environmental Policy. And I thought it was cool. Her team has actually just organized a high-level session at the European Parliament to discuss the value of the circular economy for the European Green Deal. Now, she suggests that one of the most efficient tools is for governments at all levels to lead the way through green public procurement. Now, this means that governments commit to purchasing circular products themselves. And we'll talk more about this later on in the episode. Yeah, and for more information about this month's Sustainability Scoop, you can check out our website. You find us at www.iiiee.lu.se backslash podcast. While there, also make sure to sign up for our podcast newsletter to receive reminders for new episodes, you get show notes, and much more information about our Sustainability Scoop. So, Stephen, what do you think of uh, this month's Sustainability Scoop? Yeah, I mean, for me, the Sustainability Scoop shows just how much policymakers are committed to the idea of a circular economy. But as we've discussed in our previous episodes, the circular economy is not sustainable by default. There is concern, or at least I have concern, that the circular economy can be used by business and governments 
to greenwash their actions without actually realizing any improvement in sustainability performance. Yeah, and this criticism in general has also been raised at the COP25 in Madrid, which just concluded. Some have criticized governments for not acting sufficiently to meet their targets and called out businesses that promote incremental change that reinforces the status quo. So once again, we are left asking who has the responsibility, governments or business, to realize a more sustainable economy. We will revisit this in our discussions with Jessica later in the episode when we talk about the role of policy to promote a circular economy. But first, as always, I think we need to start by outlining some definitions before we go any deeper. Yeah, I agree. So if we're talking about policies for a circular economy in this episode, first we need to understand by what we mean by policy. And as you may assume, there are many definitions and interpretations for what a policy can mean. So we consulted the Oxford Dictionary, and they define a policy in this way. A policy may be a principle that you believe in that influences how you typically behave. So maybe think of it as a personal policy about your dietary choices or consumption behavior. A policy may also be defined as a written statement of a contract for insurance. So again, think of your home insurance policy or your travel insurance policy. These are examples of policies as well. But the definition that we're going to use in today's episode is this. A policy is a plan of action agreed or chosen by a political party, a business, or another form of organization. Yeah, and this means that we find policies everywhere as guidelines that steer our behavior, at companies, and of course, at governments as policy instruments regulating all sorts of sectors. Yeah, and I'm sure you can think of all kinds of policies in healthcare, in education, and for sustainability. There are numerous policies that are enforced simultaneously to address different aspects of our public and private lives. These types of policies may include regulations in which rules are made and have to be followed. These may include things like bans or, or standards for how we conduct business. There are also economic policies like taxes or subsidies or informative policies like awareness raising campaigns or eco-labeling. And there are also policies which can be voluntary, like the green public procurement criteria. And soon, there will be policies in the form of the European Green Deal to help transition to a climate-neutral continent. So now we're moving closer to the topic. What is the role of these policies in a circular economy? And what does the policy field look like today? I had a chat with our colleague, Carl Dahlhammer, a lawyer by training who is doing research on policies for a circular economy. Who better to ask to introduce us to this field? Hi, Carl. Thank you for joining us today. Why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, my name is Carl. I'm a researcher at the Institute. I'm associate professor. We researched um, different uh, policies related to products and energy efficiency and other stuff for about 20 years. Okay, so we thought that you would be a good person to ask, why is policy needed to support a circular economy? We need policy, first of all, because we live in a linear economy where many of um, the rules, uh, the way we are and act as consumers, etc., are linear. We've been trained to quickly change products, buy a lot of new products. We have a lot of products that don't last very long, we don't repair them. 
Uh, and that also means when companies enter this linear economy with a more circular or sustainable business, they have a hard time competing. So we need to create a better policy framework for uh, pushing the right solutions, and then we need to support new companies coming in. All right. So what does the policy field look like today for, for circular economy? It's a new area. So if you compare, for instance, with climate policies, we're 20 years behind in a way, because in climate policy in Europe, we have both uh, we both have binding targets on greenhouse gas emissions, but also on renewables, how much renewable energy we should have, and energy efficiency. We don't yet have targets for circular economy, and we have a mix. Most people think it's about recycling, but it isn't really. Circular economy is more about keeping the value in the economy longer, making products and buildings last longer, using the materials wiser, because between 95 and 99 percent of everything we harvest from nature or extract becomes waste in within a month or two. You know, so we we need to be wiser with waste. So we're still struggling a little bit what exactly the circular economy is, and we don't have these binding targets that we have in climate policy. Okay, and uh, what are some good examples today of circular policies? Well, first of all, in, for instance, in the European Union, we have, um, we have this eco-design directive that we have used to make products more energy efficient, and now we start to use it also to make products more durable, and to increase the repairability on products and make manufacturers ensure there are spare parts available so we make sense to repair the products. Otherwise, it's very expensive to get spare parts to open up the repair sector. We have, uh, we're trying to change the waste legislation so it's not about waste, only waste treatment and recycling, but how to use materials smarter and so on. Uh, apart from that, there are other policies, for instance, chemical policy to make the materials less toxic so it's easier to reuse and recycle stuff. Um, and yeah, of course, uh, other policies like creating secondhand waste markets, for instance, we collect a lot of plastic, uh, but most of it is sort of not very nice plastic, so no one wants to buy the recycled stuff. What happened a little bit in, in municipalities and elsewhere is you started to procure products that are remanufactured. For instance, why buy new office furniture if remanufactured furniture can be had cheaper and with the same quality? So some of this stuff is quite durable, like expensive furniture. Also in Sweden, municipalities start to buy remanufactured ICT. And uh, uh, if you have an expensive computer that is and you remanufacture it, it's actually higher quality than a cheap new product, because quality is quality in a way. Many of uh, the policies you mentioned now seem to refer to products. Is there a particular importance for product policies when it comes to supporting a circular economy? Uh, yes. Um, we have created this society. For instance, in 1960, we said, oh, uh, single-use stuff is fantastic, you know, this was the lifestyle. Uh, so... People are not used to pay for quality. We used to buy textiles that lasted forever, and now they, they don't last many washes. Uh, so products are important for consumers. It's very important as a symbol. You know, That's something that consumer organizations, consumers want stuff that lasts and are repairable. And this is where we can do a big impact. Let's say you have a laptop or a cell phone. Most of the environmental impacts of that product is not when you use it, the energy use. It's all in the extraction and production phases. So if you can prolong the lifetime of consumer electronics, you save a lot of uh, environmental impact. 
So uh, products are important because that's what consumers know and relate to. They do buy products every day and they do suspect that manufacturers don't make them very durable. Products can be regulated. There's a lot of savings to be had from certain products group of prolonging the lifetime. I want to thank Carl for sitting down with us to discuss the policies for a circular economy. He shared with us the need for policy and also described why product policies matter. Let's keep this in mind as we now invite Jessica Luther-Richter to discuss product policy for light bulbs. Hi, Jessica. I just want to start by saying thank you so much for joining us today on this last episode of our miniseries on the circular economy. I know you have many interesting things to share about today's topic with us and our audience. We're going to talk about policies for a circular economy. We're going to talk about light bulbs. And you who listen will learn when to change your light bulb or not. But Jessica, please tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Sophie. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been researching policy for a circular economy, looking specifically at policies that slow and close material loops. And as you mentioned, the case of light bulbs. And it sounds specific, but actually there's a lot we can learn from the case of light bulbs about the circular economy. And yeah, I just defended my thesis last week. Yes, I know. I was there and you did brilliantly. So congratulations on that. Thanks. So now, given your experience researching policies for a circular economy, can you help us set the frames a bit more? Why is policy necessary to move towards a circular economy? Well, when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about the need to reform our whole system of production and consumption. And this is clearly identified by goal 12 of the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. And you might ask, is business the answer? And can they move our society and our ways of consumption towards a circular economy? And you've been talking about it in these episodes. So I suppose the answer is yes, but they can also be part of the problem, though, when business models are not building on sustainable practices. Perhaps they promote fast resource loops, making products that are not made to last. And I know you talked about fast fashion in the first episode of the miniseries, and that would be an example of fast resource loops and of business models that are not built on sustainable practices. If businesses are really to be part of the solution of a circular economy, we need policies that set the rules and promote sustainable business models. Yeah, in our previous episodes, uh, we suggested that there is a business case for companies to adopt a circular economy. Yeah, that's true. There is a business case. Businesses often strive to make products more efficiently in order to save money. This strategy can lead to less materials and fewer components being used and is an example of narrowing resource loops. Obviously, it's a win-win so long as the products are returned at the end of life. There are also business models that are able to make a profit by slowing resource loops, by extending the lifetime of the products through offering other services associated with the maintenance and repair of the products. Yeah, true. And here we can also recall the example from our last episode of the Danish architect and consulting company who is leading the way for a circular economy in the building sector as they provide opportunities to reuse materials from old buildings in new construction. Yes, these are the good examples. But there are still many businesses that make a profit with the opposite strategy as well, where products are produced new, with poor quality, used and discarded quickly. Worse yet, we also have the complete other side of the coin, maybe even a different coin if we think about it, where manufacturers of products knowingly make a product break after a certain time of use. 
So for example, there are now instances where technological equipment in particular is being slowed down or simply stops working as new software updates are rolled out by the manufacturers. So there are no mechanical issues with the product. That means nothing can be repaired to mend the problem. The product is becoming obsolete and the owner needs to replace it then. And these are examples of what is called plan obsolescence. Yeah, right. I have seen this concept flying around in the media recently. Uh, was it France that assigned a new law that makes this kind of business model illegal? Yes, exactly. So there are some big multinational companies being investigated under the new law in France, and this criminalizes plan obsolescence. But proving that companies deliberately make their product lifetimes expire after a certain time is very difficult to prove. So we have to watch these ongoing court cases. But this does not mean that everything that breaks in our homes, like phones, printers, or coffee makers, are breaking because of some devious business models or plan obsolescence. There are lots of examples of products becoming obsolete for a range of reasons. Products can just be made cheaply or fall apart. Producers can offer new products that make consumers want to upgrade before their old products are worn. And sometimes products lose functionality to pair with upgrades in the overall system. Yeah, this is happening with my old phone right now. The number of apps that it does no longer support is growing rapidly. Yeah, and then on top of that, let's face it, sometimes people just want new stuff, and therefore they see their old stuff as obsolete. But because plan obsolescence is so difficult to prove, we only have a few documented cases, and there are certainly more out there. But one of the most famous cases deals with light bulbs and the Phoebus cartel. Have you heard of this? Well, sharing offices with you, I might have heard of it once or twice. Well, then you probably know that plan obsolescence is not a new aspect of our business models in society. So I have a question for your listeners today. In which decade was the term plan obsolescence coined? All right, we give you a couple of seconds to think about it. All right. Are we ready for the answer? Go for it. The answer is the 1930s. And the term is attributed to a man named Bernard London, who wrote a paper in 1932 suggesting plan obsolescence as a policy to solve the Great Depression by spurring consumption and economic growth through the need to buy new products. In fact, plan obsolescence as a business practice existed before this, so I mentioned this Phoebus cartel, which was made up of the largest light bulb producers in Europe and the U.S. and operated throughout the 1920s and 30s. And all of them agreed to limit the lifetime of the light bulbs to 1,000 hours, even though they could make light bulbs with longer lifetimes than this. So why did they do this? Well, I'm sure you guessed it. The shorter the lifetime of the light bulbs, the more people have to buy light bulbs, and the more the companies would profit. So it's a simple business model. It just sounds horrible. Yeah. Well, that was almost 100 years ago, and of course we'd like to think that those days are over when companies would go to such lengths for profit, but there's still the same incentives for many businesses. They can still get cheap materials, they still have incentives to make products cheaply, and then are motivated to sell lots of them. So it's simply businesses responding to current economic incentives. So the question is, how do we change these incentives to balance the level playing field between those businesses that harm the environment and those businesses that seek to improve our environmental and social systems? And this is where policy comes in, because policy can change the rules of the game, both for good and for bad, but today we're going to talk about for good. All right, so that was a bit of background on why policies are needed for a circular economy in general. Now I want to zoom in a bit more on what I've spent a lot of time researching during my PhD, which is how policies can support slowing and closing resource loops. Let's first start by talking about slowing resource loops. 
This is how policies can promote longer lifetimes. And when it is desirable to do so was the question I was asking. Because it's not always a good thing. Well, it depends on many factors. And while the general answer may be yes, we want longer lasting things, there can also be exceptions. One of which is, you guessed it, light bulbs. So let's use light bulbs as an example to ask when we should have longer lifetimes from an environmental perspective. To figure this out, I used a method called Life Cycle Assessment, or LCA, just like the method underpinning the EU's eco-design directive, which also considers cost to consumers as well as environmental impacts. So LCAs seek to model the environmental impact of a product across its entire lifetime, from extraction of raw materials to production, transportation, use, and its end of life. And it can show the environmental hotspots to address with policies. So think of a light bulb as an example. Most of the environmental impacts of the light bulb comes from using it or turning it on, more specifically from the electricity needed to use it. So it's not surprising then that the focus of the eco-design policy has been on energy efficiency for light bulbs as it is for other energy-using products with the same hotspot. This is important because we must remember that the electricity that is used by our light bulbs also comes from somewhere. Ideally, it comes from a renewable energy source with a low environmental impact, but in many places, electricity is produced from coal-based power plants, which have a high environmental impact. That's right. So just some years ago, the EU enforced energy efficiency standards for all new light bulbs on the market, as it did for all energy-using products, so also TVs, refrigerators, washing machines, you get the idea. And 10 years ago, these standards effectively phased out the old-style incandescent bulbs. Such policies made it impossible for companies to sell products in the EU market that are too energy-consuming. And this is a great example of where policy changes the rules of the game, and also saved a lot of energy towards the EU's 2020 goals for energy efficiency and climate mitigation. So, can energy efficiency policies be said to be a way to narrow loops in a circular economy? Yes, energy is a resource too. So, what about the material resources then? Is this also a hotspot for policies to address too? Yeah, these products also require a lot of materials to manufacture. One way to reduce manufacturing impacts is to use products longer. So light bulbs have become more complex with more inbuilt electronics as we've moved from the incandescence towards the LED light bulbs. And the manufacturing becomes an important hotspot too then. At the same time, unlike many other product groups, LED lamps have had rapid improvements with energy efficiency with the newer models. So you have this possible trade-off between the advantages of energy efficiency improvements and the advantages of the longer lifetimes that come with LED light bulbs. So I use modeling to explore whether longer lifetimes make sense for these types of products. And I looked at the case of LED light bulbs in my research and compared LED light bulbs with a lifetime of 25,000 hours, which is a common lifetime for these products, and whether shorter lifetimes were actually advantageous because of the energy efficiency of the bulbs improving and it meant that they would use left energy and if you replace them sooner. Okay, so this means that you looked at shorter lifetimes. Yep, I explored scenarios because LEDs were already long-lasting products, but it had a shorter minimum lifetime requirement in the policy. So I was looking, is this enough? Or do we actually want shorter lifetimes because of the improving energy efficiency? Right, so you are comparing whether we want to keep them for long or and save uh, materials, or if we want to exchange them to save energy. Exactly right. You've caught the trade-off that I was exploring here. 
So it was not the first LCA done for LED light bulbs, but it was the first one that considered the fact that when you are replacing these light bulbs, you're not replacing them with the exact same product, but with a potentially superior product in terms of energy efficiency. I also looked at another important factor, the electricity mix for the country where you might live. This also makes a difference. So in the context of a low fossil fuel electricity mix like Norway, which has an amazingly high share of electricity from hydro, and to some extent Sweden as well, the climate impact of using electricity is far less in these countries than the EU average, where there's coal-based electricity still. And this is shown in the LCA, and it impacts the environmental impacts that I find. Uh, right, so what does this mean? Should I exchange my five-year-old uh, LED lamp? Yeah, we would like a simple answer. And maybe you could find a more energy-efficient LED lamp on the market that you could buy. But you live in Sweden, decarbonized electricity mix, which means that a longer product lifetime is more important in this country and in this context. So you might want to use your lamps or your light bulbs a bit longer here. Okay. But... We have to remember that in other countries, the trade-offs exist between resource and climate impacts, and these need to be discussed. So when you should go for a new energy-efficient bulb depends on that electricity mix where you live and also how you weigh that material impacts versus the energy impacts. But bringing it back to the topic we explored at the beginning, in order to move towards a circular economy, we should generally seek to slow the loops. I looked at the exception of LED light bulbs, but generally longer lifetimes are better from an environmental perspective. And we saw even with the exception of LED light bulbs, it depends on the electricity mix. In cleaner electricity mixes, we want to use them longer. It also depends on that rapidly developing technology. So if we don't have rapid development and we're not going to be replacing it with a superior product, then we should be using our products longer. Okay, so that is a good rule of thumb. Keep your products for as long as possible, unless you change it to something substantially more environmentally friendly. Jessica, what does this mean for policy then? So this means that for most products, the eco-design directive, which sets the standards, and any future European Green Deal should be promoting longer lifetimes for most products. And indeed, we see some changes happening to this effect. For example, with some new criteria now in the policies, uh, they've proposed making products more repairable. There are also some minimum lifetimes too, for example, for vacuum cleaners. But there's still a lot of work that can be done in this area. Yeah, and I happen to know that you are involved in the local repair cafes where you invite citizens to bring their broken goods to be mended. We already covered part of that in another episode last year. It was called The Circular Economy and You, so check it out if you want to know more. Yep, those are great events and examples of bottom-up initiatives. And they're fun for me. I get to learn more about how to fix things, but also what people want to fix and which products are more or less repairable. And funny enough, we get a lot of people coming with lamps and bike lights to repair. That's good for the topic. Yeah, but there are also a lot of things that we can't repair. And then people are asking us about the next step. Up until now, we've been talking about slowing material loops. But the fact remains that products do reach their end of life at some stage. And then we need to talk about closing the resource loop. And here my research looked at what really happens when we dispose of our light bulbs. Many of the products go to recycling, thanks in large part to extended producer responsibility systems set up in the EU. These are called EPR for short, and it's where producers are responsible for ensuring that their products are properly taken care of at the end of life. So they set up systems for collection and for recycling. And there are multiple EPR schemes working in the EU today for all sorts of products, not just light bulbs. So packaging, cars, batteries, and electronic waste, to mention a few. 
In my research, I looked at the Nordic countries, which have a good reputation for recycling, and I found generally that the collection and recycling systems have functioned well, and the majority of lighting products were collected for recycling. But even when the products are collected and recycled, it doesn't mean that all the materials are used again in a good way. For example, what I found with the light bulb recycler I visited is that it was hard for them to find markets for the glass and the plastic from the light bulbs that they recycled. So these were used as landfill cover or burned. This is still a challenge for going truly circular, to close the material loop and finding ways to loop the materials back into new high quality products. So we are losing quality in this process when we reuse material. Yeah, so the recycling process get the materials back, but they're significantly downcycled, meaning they lost a lot of the quality, um, which limits the markets then they can be sold to and the products that they can go into. And if we are only ever significantly downcycling, that's going to be a problem for using these uh, materials in new products because the quality is too low. And this isn't unfixable. It just means that we need to refine the policy to consider this. Okay, but that sounds hopeful. So are we generally performing well when it comes to recycling our discarded products? Well, so the EBR policies are incentivizing better collection and those products going to recycling, but still it can be problematic with the recycling processes. Some products aren't designed for recycling. Take your Christmas lights, for example, lots of wires in there, not so many bulbs that can mess up some recycling processes. And most recycling processes also can't recover all the materials. One example are the critical raw materials. And a critical raw material is a material that is essential for our products and our societies, for high-functioning products like green technology, health, and so on. And in the EU, critical raw materials have been assessed as extremely important for the EU economy. And they made a list of these materials that are at risk for not being supplied, so meaning that we cannot assure that we acquire them to the extent needed to put in these products. And you uh, looked a bit on this in your research as well, didn't you? Yep. So I looked at a critical raw material, um, a group called the rare earth elements, which are found in lighting products. And they are also important in many electronics and in magnets for wind turbines and electric vehicles. But there's very little recycling of these materials from waste products. For a short time, there was an example of a company that was recycling and processing rare earth elements from light bulbs. And EPR policies, these extended producer responsibility policies, were part of that story. They helped enable this recycling because they were already collecting light bulbs pursuant to that policy. The policy also mandated the removal of mercury, which happened to also remove the rare earth powder. And then this powder from the recycling process was a much richer source of rare earths than an ore from the ground that needed to be mined. And yet, the process, this recycling example, still stopped when the price of rare earths from China became much cheaper. So in essence, it's still cheaper to mine from the ground than to mine from powder with a much higher concentration in Europe from waste products. This is another common theme and is difficult for recycled materials to compete with primary supply when the primary supply is so cheap. And the reason why they're cheap is a lot of the externalities, like the environmental impacts of mining without stringent environmental management, is not reflected in the price of these virgin materials. So while policy has helped in some regard, we still need policies that can address this issue in some way. But that's probably content for another episode. Yeah, probably so. Something for us to put on the agenda for the future. Jessica, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Advancing Sustainable Solutions. I wonder, now, after having completed your PhD on policies for a circular economy, what are your main key takeaway messages? 
that you would like to share with our listener? Yeah, so my research examined the case of light bulbs specifically, but this case showed me that slowing material loops may involve trade-offs, and we need to understand these trade-offs before we know when policies for longer lifetimes are appropriate in which cases. And the case of light bulbs also showed me that simply collecting products and recycling materials like copper, gold, and steel is not enough to truly close material loops. Our products also have plastics and lesser-known materials like these critical raw materials, that we still need better processes and policies pushing and pulling to close those loops. So Jessica shares with us that we have some policies already in place that support a circular economy, but these can be revised and strengthened. And while some policies already exist, like the Eco-Design Directive, there are still some issues that have not yet sufficiently been addressed by policies. Maybe this will be taken up in the forthcoming European Green Deal. But in the end, our society and our systems are complex, and we need research to support policymakers to develop policies for a circular economy. Policymakers must navigate trade-offs and multiple perspectives, which include business interests, consumer preferences, and what is necessary to save the environment. I really want to thank Jessica for taking the time to sit down with us to discuss her research. She just defended her PhD on Friday, December 13th, so this was certainly a busy time for her. But a big congratulations from all of us to Jessica on her successful defense. Yeah, and a big congratulations for me too. You know, being in the US, I hated being away and unable to celebrate your success with you. Uh, But I have to say, we're all wondering what comes next for you. Yeah, good question. First, I need a little break. I'll take a little vacation. And then I mentioned a lot of needs for research to continue. And I am actually found some funding to continue researching some of the questions that came up in my research about value of secondary materials and recycled materials. So I'll be looking into that. So at the end of this episode, we conclude our three-part mini-series on the circular economy. Now, we wanted to discuss the circular economy from different perspectives using tangible examples that help us to understand how a circular economy can support sustainability. Yeah, and Stephen, you know, I think the coolest thing about our miniseries is the number of people that we have talked to in making these three episodes. The idea started as a way to showcase the research of our graduating PhD colleagues, But we realized that the circular economy is an important part of our research and education here at our institute, and it is an important part of any future economy. So let's recap. Our first episode discussed business models in the circular economy. We learned that there is a business case for circular business models, but any business model shall meet the need of its customers. Our second episode took the perspective of resource flows in cities. With more and more people moving to cities, there is a need for buildings and other infrastructure to be in place. So we must consider how we reuse construction materials to build new construction that meets the needs of these cities in the future. Finally, in this episode, we looked at how policy can support a circular economy by setting up energy performance standards, by introducing extended producer responsibility schemes, and by reshaping the rules of the game to make business models and companies move towards narrowing, slowing, and closing resource loops. Now, I think something that I take away from our mini-series is the potential of the circular economy to contribute to a more sustainable economy. 
But the circular economy is not sustainable by default. We need policies to even the playing field and research to inform policies and businesses in making decisions for sustainability. So Sophie, I'm curious, what do you want listeners to take away from our mini series? Well, there are many things, but for one thing, I am super impressed with all the good examples that we have encountered over the course of these three episodes. Just think of the clothing library, buildings made out of reused construction material, and also policies to support products to their end of life. But then I also realized that there is still a long way to go before we have a circular economy in place. Something that I take away from myself as a citizen is that I will try to be more deliberate in my own choices. Slowing resource loops by buying secondhand goods is fun, and it's also a good opportunity to acquire some unique items. Also, I know that there are some new policies coming our way in the EU, such as the ban on single-use plastics as of 2021. I think that this is a great step towards circularity, and I will support this wholeheartedly. Good. So this has been a great year for the podcast, and we're closing the year with the end of our mini-series on the circular economy. I want to thank everybody that's been involved in making these three episodes of our mini-series. First, we thank our PhD colleagues in graduating or graduated, Catherine Whalen, Julia Newsholtz, and Jessica Luth-Richter. We'd also like to thank Associate Professors Julia Wojtenko-Palgen and Carl Dahlhammer, who joined us to help explain key concepts and the importance of the circular economy. And finally, we wish to thank our amazing master's graduates, Lucille Stolp and Felicia Gustafsson, for sharing their experiences with us. So, this brings this year of the podcast to a close. Thanks to all of you for listening. Really, your support is so meaningful to Stephen and me. And if you like what you hear, we'd appreciate you sharing our podcast in your network and on social media. We love seeing your posts online. So with that, a big thank you. Yeah, Sophia and I wish you happy holidays and a wonderful new year. We'll see you back for another episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions in January. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.